Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode nine in the book of 1 Peter entitled, The Blessings of Christian Suffering, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter four, verses 12 through 19. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, the entire book of 1 Peter seems to be written from this perspective, the Apostle Peter getting the Christians ready to suffer. And it might come from this approach or this angle or from a a harsh master or an unbelieving uh, spouse or a persecuting government official. But in any case, this is kind of a summary here at the end of 1 Peter 4 of just getting ready to suffer as a Christian and to understand it in the plan of God that actually there is such a thing as suffering according to the will of God, that God is ordaining suffering. We believe that God could shut down suffering at any moment completely. Mm-hmm. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're in a, in a, in a supernatural bubble in the midst of a fiery furnace completely comfortable. And so absolutely, uh, God could put walls around us that we would never feel anything, no pain at all, but it's just not God's will. And so we're going to have to learn how to suffer according to God's will in this section of 1 Peter 4 will help us do it. Well, I'm looking forward to our discussion. I'm gonna go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Andy, why would Peter urge his readers not to be surprised at the trials that they are facing. Well, I think that we are tempted to be surprised, and this is something you know we just chatted about a moment ago. I, I see as Christianity becomes increasingly unpopular mm. in general um, American culture, in the media, the social media, Twitter, um, you know, all of the other social uh, media outlets, Christians are less and less popular. We're seen to be um, difficult people, people that pe- uh, people don't admire, et cetera. And so we're in a very much a decaying orbit yeah. in American culture. And it seems to me that many Christians are surprised. They don't understand why the world would hate us. And yet it's so overtly taught as Jesus got his disciples ready the night before he was crucified in John 14 through 17, he gets them ready, he says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Mm. And and he says, uh, if they hated me, they'll hate you. 
a, a servant is not above his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? You should expect to be treated worse than me. So uh, I think people are surprised. And I think sometimes we just expect a comfortable life. We expect a prosperous life with uh, health and wealth and ease. And then when it doesn't happen, we're surprised and we bring it back to God like an accusation. So Peter's saying right up front, don't be surprised when you're persecuted, when the world hates you. Now, it seems like the opposite of being surprised would be being prepared. Right. How is it helpful to be mentally and spiritually prepared in advance mm -hmm. for suffering? Well, Jesus overtly said that in his, in his preparation. He says, the time will come when they will hate you, throw you out of the synagogue. In fact, people who are killing you will think they're doing so in service to God. And then he says, I have told you ahead of time so that when it happens, you will believe that I am. That's the overall goal of the Gospel of John, believing that Jesus is the Christ. So when you go through the suffering, you're not gonna be shocked and then start to doubt me. Mm. When I tell you ahead of time, like the old saying goes, forewarned is forearmed, you're ready to go. You know that an enemy is coming, you get your defenses prepared. And the enemy's not, it's not flesh and blood. Our, our persecutors are not our real enemy. It may seem like they are, but they aren't. Uh, really, it's Satan, the devil and his angels, the demons. They're going to come after us. We need to get ready, put on the spiritual armor, and know that we're going to be attacked. Here in verse 12, Peter uses the phrase fiery trial to describe this suffering. How is a trial like fire in the Christian life? Yeah, I think the image is one of a crucible, and crucibles are uh, just uh, containers. Uh, in which you put precious metals that are, you know, soft uh, metals like silver or gold, something like that, and then you and then you uh, put the fire on them. You you heat them up, and the the heating of the precious metal turns it into liquid, and then as it continues, then the dross bubbles to the top, and and it can be skimmed off, and so it's a purification process. And Peter even uses language: your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire mm. may prove genuine. So there's this idea of, of being refined, being purified. Isaiah gives us the same image that, you know, you're being refined as if by fire. So the idea here is that the Lord has brought this trial upon you to purify you, to purify your faith from dross, from sinful attitudes. Now, before we move on from verse 12, and I think you alluded to this when you were talking about how Christians can behave even on social media, why would we think of suffering as a Christian to be a strange thing? Yeah. And what would that kind of thinking reveal about our view of life in this world? Yes, I think it's that we really do expect uh, to be prosperous, comfortable, and, and happy and healthy. And so it's a bit of a shock when these things come. And I think also there is a rightness to that surprise because we're going to spend eternity without any death, mourning, crying, or pain. And God will not be bringing any afflictions whatsoever to us in heaven. When we are in our resurrection bodies, it's over. So it is a temporary thing. Mm. It is very, it is light and momentary, Paul mm. calls it. So the fact that it's momentary does make it somewhat surprising, but it shouldn't be surprising given the nature of this world. We are in the post-Adam world of of death and sorrow and pain and, and suffering and afflictions. And we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't forget that Adam sinned and death entered the world through his sin and we should expect to suffer. So we shouldn't act like it's something strange. But I think it's something strange in that it really does run contrary to the way we're wired. We're not going out and looking for, for pain. 
or looking for failure, um, or looking for crop failure, or for difficult other things. Uh, and so that's why it seems strange. But it shouldn't be uh, seem strange to us knowing the world we live in. In verse 13 then, Peter seems to take this a step further than just being prepared and actually say that instead of being surprised, we mm -hmm. should rejoice. Mm -hmm. uh, but he finishes that phrase saying, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Help right. us understand what it does and maybe doesn't mean to share in Christ's sufferings. Right. Um, so the, the, just the idea of rejoicing is, is very clearly taught other places in Scripture. It's certainly taught again and again in the book of Philippians. Mm. How many times does Paul say, mm. rejoice in the Lord always? I will say it again, rejoice. Uh, and then James overtly ties it to our, our afflictions and trials. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so it will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the idea is our trials are essential to our sanctification. They're essential to that internal journey of holiness. Without them, we cannot grow. So we should say effectively, bring them on, Lord. Mm. You are the one that is wise. You're not going to bring on me more than I can handle. So in that sense, our trials are purifying us of sin and making us more Christ-like. Christ himself suffered when he was tempted. Mm. And so in that way, we're participating in the sufferings of Christ in temptation. But I think the, the home base here is much more of persecution. Uh, the idea of persecution is that Jesus was hated uh, by the world because he testified that what it did was evil. He urged people to repent and be reconciled to God. And when you get involved in that kind of ministry, you're going to get persecuted by many who reject. And so you're actually at that point participating in the sufferings of Christ. Mm. You're participating in the rejection of Christ by the world. And if you do, you're going to get rewarded. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So that's my because of my sufferings. Mm. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So he says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. One other thing, Philippians 3, Paul said that he considered all of his righteousness as a Jew to be so much rubbish. I consider all of those things to be rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, uh, which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, that I may know him. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And listen to this, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, mm. becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's absolutely linked to what Peter's saying here. We're, we're joining together with Jesus in his sufferings, and we are, are drawing close to him and learning how to die like he did. Jesus said, if you wanna follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. In this sense, rejoice, because that's exactly what you're doing. Mm. And it seems that's what Peter has in view here, even as he concludes verse 13, saying that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when, mm. when Christ is revealed, when we see him face to face, when yeah. we stand before him on judgment day, when we receive those rewards, it would be in part because of the suffering that we've shared Absolutely. with Christ. I think so. I think an image that comes to me uh, here is one of, um, of the French underground in mm. the days before D-Day. And they were out there risking their lives to do sabotage and to rescue downed British and American flyers 
and to to just do all the things you do when you're an occupied uh, people to fight against the occupier, but no, you can't take them on head on, but you risked your life for the coming invasion. Mm. And when it comes, you are overjoyed, mm. more than just people that were, you know, just trying to get through. You have, you laid your life on the line. And now that the Allies have invaded and the Germans are driven out from France, you celebrate in ways that other people can hardly imagine. So in the same way, the coming king is going to, he's going to invade. It's an invasion, Revelation 19. He leads the armies of heaven. He rides on a horse and on his name is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thigh is written this. And he comes uh, with a sword coming out of his mouth and he's coming to destroy his enemies. We are going to rejoice when his glory is revealed in proportion, I think, to what we have risked and invested in the coming kingdom. Now, how might it be helpful for us now as we start to move into verse 14 uh, to see that even being insulted for the name of Christ mm -hmm. is rewardable? Yeah, I think it's important. Let me go back to what I quoted earlier from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil uh, against you because of me. So two of the three, three things mentioned are just words. Somebody mm -hmm. insulted you and someone slandered you, said false things about you. Persecuted is just wide open. That could be everything from, you know, you know anything physical. But two of the three are words. So words actually are very painful. And, and Jesus actually says where, when you're insulted, you're actually insulted uh, because of me, you're going to be blessed. And Peter picks up on that. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. So even if some, somebody says something really harsh to you because you shared the gospel with them, you should rejoice. All right. So in verse 14, what does it mean that the spirit of glory and of God rests on a person? Mm -hmm. And why would that happen, especially in times of enduring suffering for the name of Christ? Okay. So when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two to do witnessing, um, you know, he gave them in Matthew 10 a whole bunch of instructions and they seem to be timeless. They go across all 20 centuries of church history, not just that immediate first mission that they went out. And one of the things he says is when they arrest you, do not worry ahead of time what to say. For at that time, it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father who is speaking through you. I think that really links up to what Peter's saying here. So imagine that you're arrested and then suddenly the Spirit of God comes upon you and you say some things like you never even knew where that came from. And, and so, you know, you think about some of the great statements made by people on trial for being Christians, like Polycarp, for 86 years I've served him and he's never done me wrong. How can I betray my king who loved me and gave himself for me? Something like that, Polycarp. Or, or Jan Hus who said, what I taught with my lips, I now seal with my life. I mean, that's good. Or um, Perpetua, who said, uh, while I live, I shall defeat you. And if you kill me, I shall defeat you even more. Where does that come from? These great, courageous, powerful statements. Mm. And so the Holy Spirit comes on you and speaks through you. And then the clearest example in the New Testament you'll see is Stephen. So he's hauled up in front of the Sanhedrin and you know charged with teaching these blasphemous things. And it says when they looked on him, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There was a glow about him hmm. and a peacefulness about him. 
And it continued right to the end when they're stoning him to death. He said, Lord Jesus, do not lay this sin to their charge. And he looked up and he said, look, I see heaven open and, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And, and he's just so, he's like in another world. Hmm. And the spirit of glory and God was resting on him. And so wouldn't that be awesome to have something like that happen? Uh, you know, I think about also, and, and this isn't the clear language, um, you know, of what you, uh, but I, I think it's the same thing that Paul talks about in Second Timothy chapter four. He said, at my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me, may it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. And the deliverance, I think, there was not from the physical lion, but from Satan, the roaring lion, uh, tempting him to be uh, a coward mm. when, when witnessing to the megalomaniac tyrant Nero. Imagine the courage it take, took to preach the gospel to Nero. Nero, you're a man. Someday you'll die. You need to repent of your sins. Jesus is the only savior. Imagine what it took to be able to say that on trial for your life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think the spirit of glory and of God rested on Paul that day. Yeah. I think God is pleased in those moments to make much of Christ mm -hmm. through his people. And so it just makes sense that he would be uh, with his people, with us, in those yeah. moments of intense suffering. Yep, absolutely. Now, based on verse 15, why should we not assume that all suffering in the Christian life is specifically because we are Christians? For instance, is it possible for someone to be really bold in evangelism, but maybe they're suffering not because of their boldness, but because of, let's say, their rudeness? Absolutely. <laughs> it is. It is possible. Uh, we need to be really careful. We need to ask the Lord. You know, I mean, he says it in 1 Peter 3. He says, um, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness mm. and respect gentleness and respect. Yeah. So some of these really bold street evangelists or bold workplace evangelists, they left out gentleness and respect. Mm. Uh, and respect, some of it is just uh, have respect for the occasion. I mean, imagine going to the wedding of a non-Christian relative and every almost everyone there is non-Christians. And you stand up in the middle of the ceremony and preach the gospel. It's like, don't do that. <laughs> That's not showing respect. Yeah, don't do that. So <clears throat> I think, yes, we can mess up and we can we can use our zeal for mm. Christ and we're on a mission from God to break all kinds of societal rules that we really shouldn't be breaking. We really should be respectful, peace-loving, orderly people. So you're looking for a better opportunity than that to share the gospel with some of those folks. So I would say, yeah, we, we you know, and Peter's brought up this theme before, you know, uh, with the master-slave passage or some of the other things. It's like, make certain that you don't get a beating for doing wrong and right. you endure it. So there's no it's credit like Basically, you deserve that. Yeah, you, so you, you should endure it. that. Yeah, exactly. But, but here, he's, mm. he goes even to the point of criminality. Mm. You know, when suffering, you shouldn't be suffering as a murderer, of course, or, or as, a, as any kind of a criminal. And then he even says, as a meddler. So that's, I mean, Wes, what do you make of that? That's an interesting word, isn't it? Yeah, I just, I think, you know, you mentioned social media at the outset, and I think of what a constant challenge that is for Christians in our generation who are saying a lot of things mm -hmm. that a lot of people can see uh, in a way that's just unhelpful. So it's like, you know, 
kind of sticking yourself in certain conversations or inserting yourself into an argument from a distance, throwing rocks at a house as you drive by, so to speak. And it's just, it's so unhelpful. Yeah, there's a proverb about this. I won't get it exactly right, but in the book of Proverbs it says, like one who seizes a dog by the ears <laughs> yeah. is one who gets involved in a quarrel, not his own. <laughs> this is none of your business. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think Paul mentions uh, some people that are not mm -hmm. busy, they're busy bodies. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to be a busy body? It's like you're just, you're getting involved in stuff that's none of your business. Mm. So, um, so in this case, it's not criminal, it's just bad manners. Yeah. But murder or some other criminal activity, it's like, no, don't, just don't do bad things. And he said this multiple times in this epistle. Do good, do right, say right things. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? So here he's just, hitting that same key again on the keyboard. Mm. Um, you're just saying, make certain that when you suffer, it's not because you broke a law, all right? Now, it's obviously, it's, it's difficult when you're in a totalitarian regime that has outlawed Christianity. Sure. That's a different matter, mm -hmm. and that's covered in the book of Acts. You know, it's like, look, we need to keep being Christians and assembling and preaching the gospel. So that's different. That kind of criminal behavior is not wrong. Um, and I think we see that even, I, I like the idea of, uh, of the angel um, descending on the on resurrection morning and breaking the seal that mm. the Roman governor had put on the stone. Whosoever breaks the seal, the Roman government will be after you. It's like the angel's unafraid, yeah, not worried luck. about it. <laughs> breaks the seal. Uh, I come from a higher authority, king of kings, and he wants that seal broken. Mm. And so he rolled the stone. Didn't trouble himself at all about the seal. So the idea is there's some out there's some laws that are going to be immoral, and we have to disobey those. But they're not that many. They're really actually when it comes to abortion, there's no there's no law that's immoral about abortion. It's that it's permitted and it's not illegal. That's the issue. So we're not actually being forced or compelled to do any wrong thing, even though itself is the I think the single greatest ethical mm. evil in our age. So you just have to be careful even there. Um, but the idea here is make certain that when you're being punished, you're it's not because you're doing wrong things. So verse 16 goes on then, following this, to say, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. How might suffering as a Christian tempt us to be ashamed of the name of Christ? And how can we glorify God in that name when enduring suffering? Well, Wes, that's a great question, and, and it comes up many times. Probably most famously is in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Jesus says it overtly in Mark 8.38. Uh, he says, uh, if anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Well, that's very heavy, isn't it? I'm going to be ashamed of you if you're ashamed of me. So the idea is that the world creates what I would call shaming mechanisms. It tries to make you feel ashamed for being a Christian. Don't do it, don't be ashamed. They're the ones that should be ashamed. They try to make you ashamed even in the earlier chapter that you don't jump with them into the same flood of dissipation. Mm. I guess that's, you know, uh, the beginning of this chapter four. You know, yeah. he, he's, he's saying, you know, you should be ashamed that you're not joining with us in, in a drunken, Bacchanal, it's like, 
No, I'm not ashamed. You should be ashamed for doing it. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is, is the world wants to make us ashamed for being Christians. And so the idea of a Christian, that, that jumped in in Acts 12, that was the first time that disciples of Christ were called Christians. And we should bear the name of Christ. We should be proud of that name in that, in that worship. Let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So do not be ashamed of, um, of Christ. Hmm. And I think the end of that, where it says to let that person glorify God in that name, really speaks to, to God's sovereignty and bringing these things ultimately for His yeah. glory. If we'll endure, if we'll honor Christ in our behavior when we suffer, yeah. uh, that God might actually glorify Himself through that. Yeah, and Jesus linked it, you know, to Himself. You know, He said, um, blessed, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Uh, he does the same thing in Mark's gospel where he says, uh, anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother, father, children or fields for me and for the gospel. He links it to himself again and again. Yeah. So the idea here is actually it's a great privilege to be called by the name of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of that name. I'm proud of that name. I'm proud that he, he owns me. And we, we see how important it is when, when he says, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Mm. Away from me, you evildoers. Well, if we own his name now, he will own our name on judgment day. He will, he will say, yes, he or she is mine. Now, verse 17 is a compelling verse. What does it mean for judgment to begin at the house of God? And how does suffering fit into that? It's a very strong statement by Peter here. He's cleaning out. He's cl cleaning house. Hmm. And uh, how does he do that? Well, a lot of a lot of ways. Um, he weeds out um, false professors. Hmm. Uh, by that I mean not somebody who teaches at a college, but I mean someone who professes to be a Christian. He'll weed them out. You see that in John chapter six when he says, "Eat my flesh and drink my blood." And they could not abide that statement, and many of them turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus did that on purpose. Hmm. Sometimes he jacks up the persecution, and when the heat of persecution rises, then the nominal people drop off. So judgment's beginning with the house of God, and that the nominal ones are dropping off. He says the same thing in John chapter 15. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Such branches are picked up, and they, they fall to the ground and wither. They're picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. Mm -hmm. So these are people that were hanging on. They're involved but they're not really Christians. They're not really engrafted in the vine and they're bearing no fruit. And so uh, he cuts them off. So the idea here is judgment comes through persecution in the context. The heat rises and the people start kind of falling away. This is definitely the context of the book of Hebrews. Uh, these were Jewish professors of faith in Christ who were under intense pressure by the Jewish community to forsake Jesus and go back to Christless Old Covenant Judaism. Mm. And Jesus, I mean, uh, God, through the book of Hebrews, warns them, don't do it. Because if you do that, you're trampling the Son of God on, underfoot and there's no salvation left for you. Mm -hmm. The apostasy theme is huge in the book of Hebrews. So judgment begins with the uh, family of God. Now, more generally, a time apart from uh, times of persecution, there's just um, the issue of sanctification, of holiness. God presses in on his people through convicting sermons and through accountability and through the health of the church to deal with sin and to bring people through disciplines and different things. So he's cleaning house. It's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Yeah. 
And Peter concludes that verse by asking a question. He says, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? How do you think Peter would answer his own question? And what's the significance of the fact that Peter uses the verb obey here in connection with the gospel? It's a very important word. Well, I think the simple answer is what will the outcome be much worse for them? Hmm. It's hard for us, worse for them. And so, yeah, it's the heat of persecution's on us. That's true. We're, we're going through some suffering, going through some trials. It's going to be much worse for them because mm. they're going to have to hear the words, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then these will go away to eternal punishment. Uh, he'll send out his angels and they will throw them. They'll bind them hand and foot and throw them outside in the darkness where mm. they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That. And that's infinitely worse. Mm. So bear patiently the trial, bear patiently the persecution, bear patiently the, the heat of conviction for your indwelling sins. Bear it patiently. God is getting you ready for heaven. And the word obey means that the gospel is a command from the king. We are ambassadors as though God himself were giving the people a command. Be reconciled to God. Repent of your sins and I will forgive you. And if they don't obey that, what will the outcome be for them? They'll be judged. Now, verse 18, he says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Mm -hmm. What does it mean if the righteous is scarcely saved, and how does this assertion relate to the Christian life? Why we should not assume that it's easy for anyone to be saved. Yeah, I mean, scarcely is an interesting translation. Another translation is if it is hard for the righteous to be saved. Mm. And in context, it's just he's talking about a very difficult process whereby we finally make it through this world. So we need to just understand it is fundamentally hard to be saved. Mm. It's, it's not easy. You might think, oh, it's just, just have to say, I believe in Jesus and pray the prayer and all that. It's like, well, but if you're genuinely saved, the Holy Spirit's going to be working on you and there's gonna be persecution, there's gonna be things that'll happen to you. So it's actually hard for the righteous to be saved. It's difficult for them. Well, what will the outcome be for the ungodly and the sinner? Well, we just covered that. Mm -hmm. They're gonna be condemned. So it's much, so he just uses this uh, statement from the book of Proverbs to support the assertion that this whole thing is hard. Yeah. Now, how does verse 19 teach us that suffering is definitely part of God's will for our lives? And what clear command does Peter give Christians in suffering as we conclude? Yeah, so this is absolutely overtly against the prosperity gospel, which says God would never make any of his children suffer. God doesn't do that to people. Well, this verse overtly says he does. Mm -hmm. He does bring the, the fires of testing and trial, the crucible. He puts us in the crucible and bears down on us with heat. And, and there is suffering that comes. And so those who are suffering according to God's will, because it's, it's God's will that we suffer, we should realize, like in the book of Job, we should realize there's intentionality and purpose behind this. Mm. And he's not gonna press you beyond what you can bear. He's going to save your soul through all of this. And so we should, as we are going through the fiery trial of temptation, we should, he says, commit ourselves to the, our faithful creator and continue to do good. Don't give up. Don't get. Don't grow weary or get discouraged. Don't murmur or chafe or or or, or rebel against God, but trust Him and humble yourself under what He's doing, and let Him lift you up in due time. Yeah, the language here reminds me where it says earlier in this same book uh, that Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so this is, I think, another articulation of that for us to say, man, entrust yourself, uh, commit your soul uh, to a faithful creator and continue to do good. Andy, any final thoughts on this uh, chapter, this, this passage as we conclude? I think we American Christians need to be ready for these verses to become more and more relevant mm -hmm. and more and more helpful. 
We're in a decaying orbit in America. People are more and more going, going to be more and more hateful toward genuine biblical Christians as we tell the truth about homosexuality, tell the truth about transgenderism, as we tell the truth about a lot of controversial issues, we're going to be hated. And those issues don't save people's souls, but they're part of the biblical truth. More centrally, the exclusivity of Christ. There is one and only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. That's going to be very unpopular. Mm -hmm. We need to be willing to be persecuted, and then these verses will just come alive and help us as we go through that. Yeah. Well, thanks, Andy. This has been episode 10 in the book of 1 Peter. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 11, entitled Healthy Church Life in a World of Suffering, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.